Welcome to the Housing Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors and the Center for California Real Estate. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to our Housing Matters Podcast. I'm Oscar Way, along with Jordan. Hello, everyone. And uh, today we have a special guest. Yeah. Um, I know it's the third episode of the year, and we, we, we want to make this year a different year. We want to have more people joining us, giving their opinion. So we invited some guests over. This person is flying from all the way from Georgia, and we have Professor Rajiv Dawin. Hello, Oscar and, and Jordan. Thanks for having me, and thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for coming, and I'll give you a little background of what um, uh, the uh, what Professor Rajiv uh, does. Uh, he, you have a very prestigious uh, background, and you Thank are you. the holder of SWANA Chair of Economic Forecasts, and you're the Director of Economic Forecasting Center at the Robinson College Business at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Thank you. Thank you. And I know you do a lot of forecasting, some of the things that you have done. Um, and you've done a lot of forecasting. You develop forecasts for the U.S., for the Southeast uh, regional and the local metro Atlanta economies. And you got a lot of awards for your forecasting accuracy. Luck happens sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie's been very um, into following your forecasts and especially the, the kind of interest rate and Fed movement stuff. She's been really impressed with how much oh, you Oh, I really that appreciate one. that because... Being in a forecasting center where you are working on producing your forecast and you're not a cost center uh-huh. like in a Wall Street firm, right. you can have your own opinions. You're not singing for your own supper. You're not supporting the trading desk. So you can be a little bit more mischievous with your forecast. <laughs> ah, okay. And sometimes it pays off. So I'm glad that in the academic setting, I can be a little bit more, have more some freedom. Cool, that's awesome. Cool. And we are definitely going to use, you know, your expertise in forecasting. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm throwing a, a little teaser because I know, um, Dr. Rajiv Dawan, you had, um, had some very accurate home price predictions from 2013 and 2015. In fact, I think you won the uh, Postnomics uh, Crystal Ball Award. award uh, yeah, Postnomics, which is a survey which was, I think, originally done by the S&P mm-hmm. Case-Shiller uh-huh. firm, based upon that data, they asked for our forecast, not just for this year, but cumulative over five years. Got it. And they do lots of different ways of checking your accuracy about how accurate you were in one year, over a span of two years, over a span of three, over a span mm-hmm. of five. So nobody's actually a outright winner-winner, like there's no <laughs> single number. They look at your accuracy in different categories. Got and it. it so happened that in a lot of categories over the years, I tend to hit some good points. So so the funny thing is that everybody says in the forecasting business, how's your crystal ball? What does it say? <laughs> and I always was irritated with that questions. Like we don't do, you know, we would sit on the computer. But these guys, when they actually gave out the award, they actually sent you a crystal ball. Oh, that's awesome. Really? Right. Really? So I have two of them now. So hopefully... Nice. I'm going to be more accurate if it's the crystal ball that adds to your accuracy. You know? No, and that's not easy to do. In my former life, I contributed to that same Pulsonomics forecast every month or quarter or whenever they sent it out, and uh, you were always ahead of us, so uh, <laughs> definitely not easy to do. 
and especially for this year. Now, um, let me uh, go right into, before we got into the housing market and the housing, uh, home price index, because I want people to stay until the end of the podcast. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, economy first. Now, we have a very different um, economy compared to maybe, or I shouldn't say different, but uh, we have a lot of uncertainties this year, to put it lightly. Well, let's put it this way. November 8, moment the election results were known, next uh-huh. day the market took off. Uh, the stocks went up, the bond prices came down, which meant the interest rates went up. And mm-hmm. there was a, quite a significant move because that election result was saying that whatever happened the eight years before, the kind of regime about regulation, taxes, business environment is over. Uh-huh. Good or bad, whatever it is, it's over. It's going to be a new environment. And that is where I'm trying to tell the people to have a little bit of a caution. Because one of the experts have used the word sugar rush, that the market is on a sugar mm-hmm. rush. Okay. I would say one thing, the market is a little bit ahead of itself. And I don't blame the market because even the consumers are saying, look, the plank was tax cuts. So when consumers hear the word tax cuts, they think personal income tax cut. When the businesses hear the word tax cut, they think corporate income tax cut. If you're going to get those, you're going to have more consumption, more spending, more thing. But in the last three weeks or two weeks uh-huh. of the new regime, we haven't heard a peep about those. We have heard about trade skirmishes, some talk about trade tariffs or substituting for imports and stuff like that Mm -hmm. right which has kind of like a little bit rattled the people a little bit especially because we are a trading nation and Uh especially i'm in california right next door is mexico of a number one two or three trading partner depending on which metric you use yeah you know so there is a little bit of an angst over there definitely and here's here's what i look at the 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 what you call the tension Uh if you're in the manufacturing arena especially in the automobile production or supported those categories. And you are in the Midwest, Pennsylvania, Ohio, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin. You know that your jobs are competing with the cheap labor and the technology in the other countries, especially with the NAFTA partners. Whereas if you're in Southern California running your service business, you don't see that competition. So there's a tension over here. Mm-hmm. The benefits of the trade came and they went entirely to the consumer. Right. That consumer, which is you and me, never compensated the manufacturing side, which lost the jobs. Not that many, but they lost it. Yeah. Uh-huh. We never compensated them. When we shopped at Walmart and got that great bargain, we never put a tip in the dollar jar saying, for the poor worker who lost the job. That's right. Okay. That came to a head in this election. And that's what's going to play out. So there's going to be a tension now going forward. Whether do we start with the tax cuts or do we start with a trade skirmish, I use the word. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming very clear in the rhetoric in the last couple of weeks that we're starting with a trade skirmish first. Which has implications for the growth of the economy. Okay. And that is why it's kind of like if you were doing this thing two months ago and you looked at the behavior of the stock market, you thought the tax cuts were just around the corner. Come mm. March, you're going to get a tax cut. Right. Right now, you're saying 
they haven't even started talking about it. I don't know when they're going to come. <laughs> and if people get disappointed on that, all those high numbers on consumer confidence, small business confidence, large corporate confidence can come down. Mm. And you know when they come down, it slows the economy. So the issue is what's going to happen in the next three to six months. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be critical. And that has implications for interest rates for the real estate market. Right. I'm, well, I'm, I'm glad you know you brought that up because let's talk about interest rate a little bit. Sure. Um, interest rate, you mentioned, you know, during the sugar rush period, during the honeymoon period, whatever you want to call it, you know, that uh, people who are optimistic and then, but that it's a, at the same time, when people think the economy is going to grow faster, you know, the interest rate started rising a little bit because then there's an anticipation that there might be some um, uh, increase in inflation and also the Fed may do something. So I think at the end of last year, we saw a little bit of an increase in interest rates. But it looks like in the last couple of weeks, three weeks or so, things have been kind of slowed down a little bit in terms of interest rates. Yeah, let me add some structure to your point, good point, sure. Oscar. Right after the election, the 10-year bond rate at one point was up by 80 basis points. Mm -hmm. That's equivalent to right. three rate hikes. And the Fed only did one in December. Since then, it has come down another 20 basis points, so saying only two hikes. Uh -huh. Whatever it is, when you come off a low base, when people have been accustomed to less than 4% mortgage rates, 30-year mortgage rates, for four to five years in a row, if that number jumps to 5% and not in three years, which typically we were thinking, mm -hmm. normal Fed moving, if that happens in less than three months, I don't think so. This real estate market is ready for that shock. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That is my concern. And where would that come from? Will it come from the Federal Reserve raising the rates drastically because there's some inflation from the growth? No. Mm -hmm. Even if the tax cuts come through and the fiscal spending comes through, the effects of those are going to come more in 2018 if they were implemented right. now. And there will be a little bit increase in inflation because we're going to get closer to over potential. Mm -hmm. And the potential, which I think is somewhere between 1.5% to 1.8% for the GDP growth, uh -huh. maybe with the removal of regulations and other things may become 2, 2.2. Okay. So we may grow, grow at 2.5, 3. Not too bad. A little bit of inflation. But if it comes because we have picked up a trade skirmish, with our trading partners, whether it's China, whether it's Mexico, whether it's Canada. Now even there's a talk about Germany as a currency manipulator. <laughs> right, right. Maybe Japan. <laughs> Germany is, with Germany, we done a trade deficit last in 2015 of almost 76 billion, more than Mexico's 58. Number one, of course, was China. Right. Okay. So if we start picking up this kind of skirmishes, and I'm not even talking about putting in tariffs against everybody. I'm mm -hmm. just saying skirmish. We should remember one thing that, yes, of the 20 trillion of debt that we have in this country, national debt, mm -hmm. yes, 50% is owned by banks and insurance companies over here. Another 20% by the Fed is on the balance sheet. But on the margin, 30% of that is with the foreign Entities, whether they're right. central banks, whether they're private companies, private individuals, they hold it. 
if you pick up a trade skirmish and they say, look, maybe I don't have enough money now to invest in the U.S. because you're not buying too much from us. Right. You're picking up a fight. So maybe I don't want to come into this market too much. Either I don't want to come in or I don't have the surplus. doesn't matter which way. It's observational equivalence. Mm -hmm. If they, if there is less money to be invested by the foreign entities in our treasury market, it means the interest rates, the bond rates go up. And that is what I'm worried about, that when that happens, you have a rise in the 10-year bond, which means a concomitant rise in the 30-year mortgage rate or 15-year mortgage rate, whichever way you want to do it. And that's the kind of disruption I'm worried about. Mm. So right now, in the Bloomberg forecast of interest rates, they told me that I was the biggest outlier because I had a trade skirmish intensifying in about three to four months from now with an impact on the 10-year bond rate of it crossing, not just 3%, even Whoa. getting closer to 3335 for a short while. Wow. Really? Because of this. And if that happens, I'm talking another 80 basis point from here. Wow. And in this forecast, you will have a rate hike by the Federal Reserve in March, according to me. You know why? Okay. Today's employment number on paper was fine. Quality of the jobs was not that great, but uh -huh. it was fine. The trend of the job growth is about 170 to 180. Right. It hasn't fallen to the 140. It's holding. So, so the Fed can go with the rate hike in March and wait to see how the trade thing works out. Mm -hmm. They need to get the hikes out of the way Okay. Uh -huh. before the trade things begin. Once they begin... That's when the bond rates climb, and that's what the forecast is. Mm. So this is one negative way of doing the same bond rate forecast. Let me give you the optimistic one, Okay. <laughs> the alternate scenario, which I thought would happen, but it's not happening so far. Imagine a tax reprieve is given to all the cash money sitting abroad on the balance sheets of the corporations. Okay. The repatriation, pay only 5%, bring the money back. Get an amnesty and bring that money Yes. Back. Now imagine, if you're the CFO of a company, a big company, do you, do you keep your billions sitting around under the, under the, in the office in cash? No. It sits in liquid instruments. Mm -hmm. And what are those liquid instruments? That is where the unknown thing comes in. If those instruments are sitting in UK bonds or German bonds or Australian bonds, you can sell those, buy the dollar, and come over here, which mm -hmm. means dollar becomes stronger. It hurts your exports, but makes the imports cheaper. But there is no impact on the interest rate market. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if you're a smart CFO, you can buy all the gels and the bones and everything. There's not enough of that. So a large portion of your portfolio is probably sitting already in treasury notes and bonds. Now you have this thing that you can bring the money in. Of course, the money is sitting in, a, in an entity, in a bank. Bank could be American foreign. Mm -hmm. So now you're going to sell the bonds and buy the dollar cash. Maybe you will do investment. Maybe you will do a stock buyback. Right, okay. We don't know. Right. But if you sell the bonds, price of the bonds goes down, which means the interest rate goes up. Cash comes over here. You invest in the economy. Economy grows. But the interest rates are high. 
because all of a sudden sure. there was a shock to demand and supply. Less demand for bonds. And that's the positive story, which also gives you a sharp rise in the interest rates. You combine them together, it becomes a little bit more problematic. So, so I guess I'm hearing that the days of 3.5% mortgage rates are <laughs> long gone. That I can tell you, you can never say never. The <laughs> only way those days will come back is if you have a major disruption in global economic activity, the way we saw in 08, 09, or even in 11, when the euro had the, you know, the Grexit problem. Mm -hmm. So barring those kind of negative things happening in the world economy, you can't have interest rates go down low now. But what if, you know, you know, the skirmish on, on trade, you know, would that uh, disrupt global economic growth and would that actually affect both U.S. and some other countries' economic Oscar, I would call, when I use the word skirmish, I'm just talking about open dialogue, some kind of tweets and threats and this uh -huh. thing. What you're talking about disruption means that they have done some kind of a tariff. And I can tell you one thing. The president under the Trade Act of 1974 has the power without going to the Congress to impose tariffs up to 15% mm -hmm. for 150 days or trade quotas without going to the Congress for mm. approval. Okay. Up to 150 days. Mm -hmm. So in my forecast, I have a trade skirmish, as I call it, morphing into a bit of a trade thing, a tariff, which only lasts two quarters. And then magically, we come back to normal. All is forgiven. There are no hard feelings, and the economy comes back. That's the best I can forecast for 2018. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I remember the statement of Bill Gross. All I can give you is a forecast for the bond rate for 2017, and that's it. <laughs> now, and you can understand why that was said. There are a lot of unknowns going forward, and we can do a best-case scenario or a worst-case scenario. Right. And I'm still sticking to the best case, but I do start with a trade skirmish. Mm -hmm. But you can see where I'm going. That is why after March, April, things get a little bit more uncertain, as you mentioned in the starting, okay. gotcha. in that sense. Got it. it is not uncertain that there will be more regulations. There will be less regulations. There will be some rollback of regulations, both in of Dodd-Frank and EPA and other things, which right. the real estate industry always loves because they always have trouble building. Sure. I'm in California where you get lot of grief in trying to get building permits. Right. I am coming from Atlanta, Georgia, where if the building permit is taking more than a month, people complain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. It's a good problem to have. Right. Over here, if it's less than two years, people say, that was normal. That was easy. Right. Okay. So, so in that sense, things are different. You know, that uncertainty is not there. But the trade thing, if you watch the press conference today about President Trump meeting with his group of business executives and the advisors, uh -huh. it was very clear that, you know, and looking at the statements that have come out from the administration that, you know, this could be just a deal-making ploy. This is all talk. There's been no action. Right. But as I said, under the Trade Act of 1974, President has the authority to impose that unilaterally on anybody with which we run a balance of payments problem. Hmm. You don't even have to declare them to be a currency manipulator. What is a balance of payment problem? 
you are selling them less and buying more or go you have a trade deficit plus a little bit of cash outflow that's the balance of payment and in our top 15 trading partners i think we run a serious trade deficit problem with at least 12 of them mm-hmm. wow so you can declare anybody a this one and put a tariff 5% 10% 12% 15% or quotas outright quotas remember in the late 80s there were those so called voluntary export restraints that the japanese car makers were following so that they would not export so much to the us the side effect of that was that initially the car prices were higher for the consumer but then the japanese brought their plants to the us they, but they didn't put them in midwest they put them in the south right. nissan went to tennessee uh other people went to alabama south carolina other things they learned mm-hmm. but at this point the car makers use mexico as a base to do some production mm-hmm. for example your car seat in the car in a typical american car has so much back and forth between mexico and tennessee and midwest on just one car seat that your head will spin <laughs> you know this is there's no such thing as a american product or a mexican product when it comes to the car seat right and even in 1993 you know, the so called american car wasn't made was all the parts were not made in the us at that time you know belgium used to supply the seat covers and and swiss and austria and sweden and germany would supply some other parts engine was definitely american but the rest of the car and the panels were but the rest of the car was products were from outside mm-hmm. but that's what competitive advantage is if you can make my seat covers cheaper and better i'll take it from you but i make the engine better i'll right. put the engine in you can't have right now the talk in the administration is i, I like I mean, it's reminding me of some stuff from development economics which i did 30 years ago and i thought i was done with it <laughs> hearing these words about import substitution that's mm-hmm. what this right. talk is all about make it everything over here well competitive advantage says that you can't be efficient at everything michael jordan can play much better basketball than all of us and then probably will be able to mow his lawn much better and much faster than all of us but you don't see him doing that he outsources that to the other people and goes plays the basketball and makes the money mm-hmm. same thing we do in our life so idea that you can do everything in the house is is it goes against the grain of gains from trade or competitive advantage however there are side effects of trade sure. and as i said when we got the break at walmart on the cheaper products we did not think for a second about the jobs that were lost by the producers of the people before those products were expensive but that's why people didn't buy we so didn't take any of those gains and kind of compensate some of the folks who actually lost out from trade and i think that underlies you know, a lot of this political right. climate that we're in today those people are voters too in a certain area and said thing i don't blame them you know you know even the you know people say look manufacturing employment was 15 million in 1950 now it's only 13 we only lost 2 but the other 13 who are left over are worried if it continues it right. may be gone all in 5 to 10 years 
It's not true it will all be gone. Sure. But if the fear comes in, those 15 million people are voters. Right. To what extent do you think that trade kind of gets the blame for a lot of these productivity gains? I mean, at least from where I stand, I think a lot of these you know, manufacturing jobs, Rust Belt jobs were you know, victims in large part, too, to improving productivity and technological advances that kind of rendered some of our old jobs obsolete. And I feel like some of that gets projected onto you know, being purely a trade-driven issue. Well, Jordan, you have a good point. What you're pointing out is that those productivity improvements were in the arena of robotics, artificial intelligence, right. and uh, other things. So we had the productivity improvements, but we did not need that many people. And I put it simply this way. The dark underbelly of productivity is loss of jobs. That's right. If you want to produce the same amount of output, you need less labor. With the people, number of hours, it doesn't matter. Productivity improvement always means you can produce the same output with less input or effort, including labor. Right. Sure. Okay. It usually means capital deepening that you're going to use more capital, but less labor, substitution. And that is why if you have just productivity improvement, but no growth in the overall demand in the economy, then you're going to have no growth in jobs. And that's why the last couple of recoveries were initially very jobless. Mm -hmm. It's only when you've done with the productivity improvements, you've taken the maximum benefit, and now you need to expand your production, you have to go back to the old-fashioned, more in output, more inputs. Sure, sure. Which we're seeing right now. But the trouble is, today's job growth, 226,000, 27, whatever right. it was. 227. Mm -hmm. If you notice, three sectors, retail trade, mm -hmm. hospitality, and construction, combined together are 25% of the job base mm -hmm. by number of people employed. Right. Produce close to 60% of the job growth today. These sectors are not known for high paying jobs. Right. So the issue is the job number today, headline was great, quality of the jobs as I call it, purchasing power was weak. So if you look at the job growth number, wasn't that great. Right. Or like a wage growth number, wasn't that great. You can explain that. Now, what happens is, in our mind, when we hear the number 227, it reminds us of the late 90s tech-fueled mania, bubble, whatever you want right. to call it. Right. I was in Southern California at that time. At that time, 227 meant job uh, wage growth of 4, 5, 6%. Right? Right. That's what people have in mind. Yeah. And what people are wow. saying is that, don't give me just these numbers. You've told me the job growth in 2015 was 226 on average and last year was 187, a little bit slow down. I don't care, potato, potato. Where is the income growth? Right. The income growth in this recovery, even after the maturing of the business cycle, is still in nominal terms about one third to less than what it was in 2005 and six, which wasn't that great yeah. in recovery. Right, I know. Right. So people see it in their purchasing power. If it wasn't for the benefit of low oil prices putting money into people's pocket the last few years, it could have been a little bit less of a decent growth. You know? Yeah, so and that's critically we, important for our members too, because we're seeing the, the same thing, very lackluster income growth, but prices for homes continue to go up and up, and so we just get kind of further behind the eight ball in terms of affordability here in California. Well in 
California, you have a perverse issue that you, the number of permits you do in California, mm-hmm. let's say, let me put it roughly speaking, the number of permits you did you do in Southern California, which is about four times the population of Atlanta metro area, you know, is less than the number of permits we do in Atlanta. Right. So no wonder the home prices don't grow crazily over there because we have a substitute. Right. You don't like the existing home, there's a new one coming up. Yep. You know, Down wondering. the road, not just today, but tomorrow and the day after too. Over here, if a new home comes up, it's a blessing. Yeah. And people want to get it. And it's pretty expensive too. <laughs> Continue yeah. to be very, very expensive because of all those regulations and cost of labor as well um, in the construction industry. Now, um, you mentioned about your optimistic and maybe not so optimistic interest rate movement. Um, if we have, let's say if we are going to get to, let's say 5% or so, what do you think, I want to get this to the very end, what do you think the home prices of at the national level or maybe state level is going to do for 2017 and 18? Okay, the question for the real estate perspective is if we get to a 5% mortgage rate, uh-huh. And it is because the tax cuts have come in, the growth is booming, and we are growing at 3% in GDP. No problem. Uh-huh. Because people's incomes are growing. Right. Right? If we get to the 5% interest rate in the dark scenario because of the trade skirmish and a trade action, then your incomes are not growing, but you have mm-hmm. to pay higher. Mm-hmm. That's not good for the real estate market. If you break it down into three parts, Let's start with the one industrial component. You're in Southern California, you have great warehouses, you're building them, you can see that in the data, it's a growth area. Mm-hmm. If the number two scenario happens, the trade skirmish one, that's not good for this sector, no matter what the interest rate is. Okay. True. Let's go to the commercial. If the growth is there by the scenario number one, tax cuts, tax breaks, and more investment and more growth, the demand for that goes up. If it's the other one, there's no more increase in commercial real estate demand, mm-hmm. so prices. And of course, on the residential, again, the same thing. The mortgage rate is higher. It's always, people always don't like it. But I bought my first home in 2008 May, and I paid an interest rate of 5.675 on a 30-year mortgage. And I thought it was a lottery of the lifetime. Yeah, It was the lowest. I've refied twice. I'm sitting at 3.75 since 2011, and I have not been able to refi because I was able to get the 3.75 in 2011 because of one thing, the Brexit issue. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Drove down those rates. Thanks to our Greek cousins, they made us look like the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry basket. <laughs> and I got the break on the interest rate because there was a flight to safety all over the world. People said, let's go buy the American bonds and dump everything else and we got the break. It wasn't that the growth of the economy was superlative. My first refi in 2009 September was because the economy was pretty weak. Yes, technically the recession was over. But the Fed had gone to 0% interest rates, doing QEs, interest rates fell, and I was able to refi. My two refis were because of either internal problems or external problems. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say, if I'm able to refi again, 
it's only going to be because the global economic order right. is really suffering, not because growth is there. Gotcha. So rates, it looks like, are going up no matter what, and it's maybe something that we can absorb as long as those rate increases aren't the result of kind of foreign governments dumping right. treasuries onto the open market. Right. And I know, you know, we can go on and talk a lot about the economy and the housing market, but since we are in the interest of time, because we have to limit the podcast to about 30 minutes or so, um, thank you again, uh, Rajiv, for, for joining us. I'm sure we'll talk more uh, maybe in another session. But um, you know, made us all smarter, and we really appreciate no, no, having no. you here. Oscar and Jordan, thank you for your patience to listen to me and to give me the time to open my views openly. You know, I really enjoyed my visit back to my homeland, as I call it, Los Angeles, after a long time. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And maybe in maybe six months or so, if things I mean, we will get a little bit more certainty in a certain way. Uh, maybe we can touch back. Uh, I hope in six again. months I'm talking about the scenario number one and <laughs> not the scenario number two. But unfortunately, the way it's moving, it looks like the number two is looking more and more likely as of today. Great. We'll find but out. But remember, just like, you know, election time, things can change on a dime over oh, here. That's yeah. true. And we will keep you guys posted on that as time progresses. So Yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, until next time, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. You.